Good morning. Uh, it has been great to worship together. I feel like we've already had a sermon, so we should probably just have the benediction and go home, but since I brought one ready, I'll go ahead and give it anyway. Uh, I want to thank all the folks who lead us in worship, uh, both here and in 930. Uh, they do a wonderful week, uh, job week by week, and, and many of them, most of them, the major- vast majority are volunteers, and uh, the t- amount of time they invest week after week in rehearsals is, uh, is really a service to us, but ultimately they do it because I know they love the Lord and they want to serve Him, so we appreciate their leadership. And I appreciate you being here. If you're a guest with us this morning, maybe it's your first time or maybe you've just been coming recently, I want to say again, welcome to you. We're glad that you are with us today. Uh, my name is Gary. I'm the pastor here at Southside, and you have come in in the middle of a conversation that we're having, but we're glad you came when you did. Uh, we have been talking about awakening, spiritual awakening? What would it take for us as individuals and as a church to have a spiritual awakening? And if you're interested in this subject and want to kind of catch up where we have been, uh, you can go to our website, ssbc.org, and our media tab has uh, has some information there, some audios or on iTunes. Our podcast is there, and you can catch up. But just to bring you up to speed and to remind us where we've been, we started with a, with a familiar story in the Bible when Jesus gathered three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, together, and he went to pray, and he told them to keep watch while he went a little further to pray. And he came back and he found them sleeping, not one time, not two times, but three times. And he gave them some advice that we said as Christians today we would be good to heed. And it's found in Matthew 26, 41. Some of us have memorized it. If you have, you can try to say it with me. Watch and pray so that you may not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? And this verse reminds us that our spiritual walk with with the Lord is not about our good intentions, You can have great intentions, and we all have good intentions most of the time, especially when we begin our faith journey with Jesus, but it doesn't take us long in that faith journey to sort of get knocked off kilter or off paths. I think all of us would testify we've been knocked off the path a time or two, and that's why Jesus said it's not enough to have good intentions. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Therefore, keep watch and pray. And so as Christians, for thousands of years as the church, we've reminded ourselves, hey, keep watch. We need to keep watch and we need to pray. So we have been looking at stories in the scripture of people who literally were sleeping that God woke up. And we wanted to say, what is it that these stories have to tell us about our own spiritual awakening? So several weeks ago, we started with a familiar story of Jonah in the Old Testament. And we talked about how a lot of our experience is that we just simply fall asleep and fail to take responsibility for our own sin, for our own brokenness. And like Jonah, we, we disobey God or, or we fall short and we don't take responsibility for it. And in the middle of a storm that's raging all around us, while all of our family and our loved ones are dealing with the consequences of our bad choices, we're sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And we said that God is calling us to wake up and to recognize that the consequences that come into our life are his act of love to draw us back to himself. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a story, a familiar story, uh, the prophet Elijah and Elijah was a good man. He was a, he was a prophet of God, used of God in a mighty way. Uh, but Elijah was facing really difficult, almost impossible circumstances. And maybe like some of us in our journey along the way, he became overwhelmed by just how hard life can be. 
He, he, maybe for you, it's a medical situation. Maybe it's a financial situation. Uh, maybe it's a marriage crisis that you had, you had very little part in that, involved in that. It was a choice somebody else made. But the circumstances of life have become so hard for Elijah that he curled up in the fetal position and went to sleep. And don't we want to do that sometimes? We just want to go to sleep because it's too hard. God came and woke Elijah up. And he said, Elijah, you've got to get up. You've got to come out of the cave of despair and discouragement and depression. And he said, you need help. You don't need to be alone. We talked about how for some Christians, we are battling such deep discouragement and depression. God's inviting us to step out of the cave. Maybe even to call on somebody and say, I need help with this. This is too much for me to bear alone. And God never intended us to bear it by ourselves. And then last week, Ron Gilliard, in my absence, he, he preached a, another Old Testament passage about Samuel. The, the prophet Samuel is a, is a large character. He, his story covers a lot of the Old Testament. But it started even before his conception. And when he was a little boy sleeping in the temple with Eli, his mentor, he heard the voice of God calling him, waking him up and calling him to a higher purpose. We talk about how God is calling us. We have to be, we have to be fully awake and aware that it may be God's voice calling us into service for him. So today, I'd like us to pick up, and, and, and we're going to look in the New Testament at a story, Acts chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open to Acts 12. There are Bibles in front of you. We'll also put this on the screen so you can follow along. But while you're looking that up, I want to ask if you remember, if you can ever remember a time when you were a child that you went to sleep in one place and woke up in another. How many of you can remember that? Maybe as a little, little boy, little girl. And you, maybe it was a long road trip that you were on with your family and, uh, and, and you fell asleep in the car and, and somehow when you woke up you were already in grandma's bed or you were already, you were already in the hotel room and, and somehow you got there. And if you remember that, if you can think back to that, there's almost a, a miraculous moment. Like when you wake up, you're like, how did I, how did I get here? How did I wind up in this, in this place? And, and we know as adults looking back that clearly somebody was awake while we were sleeping. Clearly somebody was active even active on our behalf while we were unconscious and unaware of it. And and I just want you to know today, this may be all you need to know today, I want you to know that the God that we worship and the God that we serve and the God that we read about in the Bible does not sleep. He is always active and he is always awake. There are some who would have you believe that God is disengaged or that God is disinterested or that God is apathetic or God is uninvolved, but that is not the God of the Old and the New Testament. Even when we sleep, whether we're sleeping through the consequences of our sin, or whether we're sleeping because life's just too hard, or whether we're just sleeping because we're exhausted and we're finding some rest, God never sleeps. And he is always actively working to accomplish his purpose And so today, as we look at this story, I want us to look at a tension that this story brings that many of us feel. A tension between resting in the Lord, trusting Him to do what only He can do, and being responsible and obedient to do the things that God calls us to do. Some of you have felt this. Where is the line between resting and trusting in the Lord and praying for God to act and Our responsibility to take action, to engage in what God is calling us to do. Some people pit these two things against each other. I I hear this all the time. And, And people will talk about, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. 
But the way that looks to some outsiders is you're being awfully lazy. You're not engaged in what it is God's calling you to do. And so we, we get this tension, we have this problem between these two ideas. So, so before we get to this passage, I want to challenge you with the idea of waiting on the Lord. And I want to do it with just a, a simple illustration. When you go to a restaurant, the person who serves you is called a waiter. Now, is, would you as a patron of a restaurant leave a good tip for a waiter who had gone in the back room and taken a nap on the cot? No, you would say that waiter isn't waiting on me. You see where I'm going with this? Waiting can be active or passive. And for many of us, when we hear the idea of wait on the Lord, we think of it passively. But the Bible doesn't. The word waiting in the Bible is an active word. It's as if you were a waiter... And Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus himself, is sitting at one of your tables. And what is your responsibility but to wait on him? What does that mean? That means sometimes you literally stand still and wait. But other times waiting on him means you engage in meeting what it is that he is calling you to do. The way he is calling you to serve. So I want to look at this passage because in this passage we see the challenge between complacent Christianity, Christianity that has fallen asleep and uses spirituality and prayer as an excuse, and we see a God who is extremely active and inviting his people and his church to wake up to his activity. So let's take a look at this. Again, it's Acts chapter 12. I'll begin in verse 1 and 2. Acts chapter 12, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. If you remember the Christmas story, and there was a King Herod in that Christmas story, he was the one who sent the wise men, uh, and he was going to try to find, and he ended up killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem. This Herod is that Herod's grandson. But the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He's still a bad and evil king. And he has gone about and he's been persecuting the church. The church has has experienced tremendous success in those days immediately following Jesus' resurrection and ascension back to heaven. And and the, the religious leadership and the political leadership is all conspiring to try to squash it out. And so he is persecuting them, he's arrested some of them, and he intended to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, this James that this is talking about is one of those three disciples that we met in Matthew 26. Peter, James, and John. This is one of Jesus, one is one of Jesus' closest friends. This is John, the gospel writer's brother. So he is a major figure in the early church. Herod had him arrested. And he had him, he had him killed. Uh, and when he saw that this met the, with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Politicians have been taking polls for as long as, there have been, as there's been life. I mean, as long as there's been a politician, there's been a poll. Herod saw that this met with the pleasure of all the people in Jerusalem. He was on shaky ground with them anyway. He was making the Jews happy by persecuting the Christians. He thought, oh, well, if you like that, watch this. So he went out and he had Peter arrested. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. How many soldiers was that? Good job, 16. 
Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church, this is the rest of us, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, my guess is they had already been in a, in a, in a prayer meeting that had gone on for many, many days. Because at some point preceding Peter's arrest, James had been arrested. And James was persecuted and ultimately executed. So my guess is that the, prayer, that the church has been in a perpetual state of crisis. And nothing drives us to our knees in prayer like crisis does it. Sometimes I wonder if we pray any other way. I mean, look at just the history of our nation. When does the nation itself go to turn to the Lord in prayer? When there is a crisis of some kind. And so the church was in a crisis. They've been in this prayer meeting. Peter's now arrested, so they're, they're praying for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial. Now, what does that tell us? That Peter was in prison for a, a period of time that they had continued to pray, the church had continued to pray for Peter. I'm sure Peter was praying, and nothing had happened for a set period of days. There was no activity. It looked as if God was uninvolved. It looked as if God was disinterested. It looked as if God might be asleep. After all, James was in prison too. He was never released. He ended up dying. Maybe, maybe God's not involved. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's fallen asleep. So they're all praying, and it was the night before the trial. It was the 12th hour. It was right there at the wire. Peter was, what's that next word? Sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. I mean, he was not going anywhere. He, he, he had chains on his, probably his wrists and his ankles. Two guards posted right beside him. Guards at the doors, and there were two sets of doors. And so these 16 guards were all around him somewhere, keeping watch over this one prisoner. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone into the cell. He struck Peter on the side. I love that. He didn't, like, Peter. You know, that, that's how I want to be. I, I want to be woken up like that. You know, Gary, get time to wake up. It's usually not how it happens. There's usually an elbow in the side. It's, Gary, get up. Because that's what it takes to get me out of bed sometimes. It's what it takes to get you out of bed sometimes. So, so the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told Peter. Peter followed him out of the prison but, listen to this, when he, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. Then they had walk, when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself. Now notice the difference between Peter physically waking up and Peter becoming fully aware of what's going on. Some of you stumble through the first hour of your day and you're not fully aware of what's going on. You got to get that second or third cup of coffee before you know. Peter had, was physically awake, following the angel's directions, past two sets of guards, out the city gate, but it was only after the angel left him that he came to himself. And he said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angels to rescue me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. 
Have you ever had a dream so real that when you woke up, you were confused? That you weren't sure if that really had happened or not? Maybe you had a nightmare so bad that when you woke up, you weren't sure you were hoping what you had just dreamed hadn't really happened. It can happen both ways, where we come to our senses and we're like, did that really happen or not? Peter woke up with, with what he thought was a dream, but in reality, his circumstances were better than a dream because they were actually taking place. I love the fact that, that the Bible gives us the stories of all these great characters of faith, and he, it doesn't try to alter them or make them look heroic or better than they actually were. That, that these people in the Bible that we read about struggled to know and recognize God's voice and God's activity, just like I struggle to recognize God's activity and God's voice. That they struggled to know, is the, what is God saying? What is God doing? How is God acting? Peter, remember, had walked with Jesus for Jesus' ministry on earth. He had seen the miracles. He had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. He had seen Jesus ascending to on high. And yet, he still had trouble believing that what was happening to him was really happening because it was too good to be true. Now, if Peter, who witnessed the resurrected Jesus, could struggle to recognize God's hand in a circumstance, doesn't it stand to reason that you and I might sometimes struggle to recognize God's activity in our lives as well. That's what was going on here. He was confused by it, but there was a miraculous intervention that could be explained no other way, but God was actively working. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. Now, one of the reasons that people are confused, get confused about the Bible, is like today, there were a lot of people with the same names. So when you read this about Mary, this is not Mary the mother of Jesus or, or the Mary uh, and Martha Mary. This is Mary who is the mother of John Mark. And of course, there are a lot, several Johns that we read about as well. This John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was not one of the original disciples, but he was one of the early followers. So this, this is John Mark's mother's house, and there were many people who had gathered and were praying. So this is where the church was in hiding. They were locked up in this house, and they had been praying for days. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! In other words, this poor, you know, I've, you know, I've always thought, I thought, I don't know if I would want my name in the Bible or not, because it could be in there uh, for a good thing, or it could be in there for a bad thing, but I wouldn't want to be remembered for, like, for Rhoda. You know, Rhoda's name, we don't know anything else about her except she was a servant, and she was so excited, she goes to the door to see who's knocking. They're afraid it could be soldiers, it could be the officials coming who's finally found them out. She goes and she sees that it's Peter, the person they've been praying for. She doesn't even unlock the door. She just runs back in and she tells everybody that Peter's at the door. Now, what has the church been doing? They've been praying. Who have they been praying for? They've been praying for Peter. What have they been praying God would do for Peter? That, that Peter, that God would save Peter. Listen to what they said. You are out of your mind. They told her. And when she kept insisting, and the idea is that she didn't just say it once and they denied it once. She kept insisting, meaning that they were arguing with her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. In other words... It's too good to be true. God really doesn't behave that way. 
He really doesn't answer prayers when we ask him to do these things. If there is somebody at the door, it must be Peter's spirit, resurrected spirit, who's knocking at the door because there's no way God miraculously released Peter and Peter is standing in the physical presence at the door. Now, I remind you that some of the people who were in this room witnessed the resurrected Jesus ascend into heaven. Some of the people in this room were with Mary and Martha when Lazarus was laid in the tomb and they waited four days for Jesus to show up and Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and they saw that. And they're praying for this miracle which in comparison doesn't even come close to a resurrection and when it's standing at the door they don't believe it. How many of us are just like that church? We pray for things all the time, and we don't really believe that God's going to do it. We don't really believe that God's going to intervene in a miraculous way. And when he does, we may even deny or try to find an excuse for it. How can we find a human explanation for that? Because it's too good to be true. And it's a lack of faith on the part of the church. And it's a lack of faith that doesn't express itself because they weren't doing churchy things. It's a lack of faith that sometimes expresses itself in the middle of churchy things. In the middle of a prayer meeting. They're they're, they're lacking the faith to believe what it is that God had actually done. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. Now why did he do that? Because there were at least 16 guards who were probably looking for him. And, and they're, they're probably about scouring about the city. Peter is on the run. He has just escaped from prison. It was a prison break. And the folks are after him. And he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And here's what he said. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Now, a lot of people who study the New Testament believe this is when the leadership of the church was transferred in Jerusalem, was transferred from Peter to James. And you think, well, wait a minute, I thought James was just executed. This is another James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who, by the way, did not believe that his brother was the Messiah until after he was resurrected from the dead. Because if your brother claimed to be the Messiah, it would take a resurrection for you to believe that too. But after the resurrection, James became a believer, he became a leader in the church, and Peter, who is now being pursued by Herod and all the officials, is leaving, and so he's handing off basically the leadership of the church to James, and he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then he went down to Judea, to to Caesarea, and spent time there. Now, if you go on and read in the book of Acts, Herod never returns to Jerusalem. He is struck dead. All 16 guards die. Herod, the king, dies. They are driven away from Jerusalem, and the person that they had set out to capture, imprison, and silence is free. Now, if you had just backed the clock up just a few hours and you had looked at the situation, 
Peter's in prison, shackled, changed. The church is in hiding. 16 guards standing around. Herod, the king, is, is out to get the church. The whole Roman Empire, the most powerful uh, empire the world has ever known, is out to get the church. Who in that moment would you have thought would have been victorious? Who would you thought would have been left standing? You see, we look at our circumstances and we think there's no way, there's no way that this is going to turn out for good. And every time we think that, we've underestimated God. That God delights in impossible circumstances. And even when we pray, lacking the faith to believe that God will do it, God is still faithful. Even in the midst of our unbelief. And so, so this is what's going on in this early church. And I want to talk a little bit, as we look at this story, about the difference between the activity of God in this story, the things that only God could do and the things that God did, and the activity that he expected his followers, Peter and the rest of the church, to do. First, God's activity. Things that only God could have done. The first thing, he broke Peter's shackles. Only God could have done that. No key was involved. He, he just, the angel showed up and it just says the shackles fell off of Peter. Only God could have done that. He gets Peter past two sets of guards. It doesn't say how he did it. It doesn't say if the guards were sleeping. It doesn't say if they were struck blind. It doesn't explain how. But somehow God got Peter past the two guards. He got him outside of the city gate. Which beyond the 16 guards responsible for, for looking after Peter, there would have been sentries around the wall and around the gates. And somehow that gate was miraculously open and Peter walked out of the city gates. Only God could have done those things. All the praying in the world, all the praying in the world was for God to act and God did act and did things that only he could have done. But there were things that also in this story depended on Peter's obedience and on the church as well. Consider this with me. The first thing that the angel says to Peter is, wake up. Now don't rush past that. Because whether it's Peter who is physically sleeping between the guards or whether it's the church who is in a prayer meeting, God's call was the same. Wake up, watch, and pray. Don't just pray without watching. And don't watch without praying. You have to do both. The church was so wrapped up in its prayer meeting that it had fallen asleep even in the middle of its prayers. Wake up, God said. The second thing that the angel tells Peter to do, that Peter has to do, is he has to get dressed. Now, Think about that for just a minute. If the angel could miraculously knock the shackles off of Peter, the angel could have miraculously clothed Peter as well. But he told Peter, get dressed. And Peter had to get up. He had to get dressed. He had to wrap his cloak around him. And then the angel said, follow me. Peter, you're going to have to get up. You're going to have to get dressed. You're going to have to wrap your cloak around you. And you're going to have to put one foot in front of the other. And you are going to have to follow me. Peter, I loose the shackles, I'll take care of the guards, I'll take care of the gate, but you still have a responsibility. You still have something that you have to do. And then the other thing that Peter had to do was he had to be willing to go to the door and knock. Notice the angel didn't even go with him. The angel got him past the city gate, Peter was on his own. It was up to Peter to go to the door and knock, and it was up to the church to get off their knees, walk to the door, unlock the door, and open it so that the answer to their prayer could come in. Now, 
listen, I have said it, many of you have said it, and we need to stop saying it. If you are praying for open doors and closed doors to tell you what God's will is, I invite you to read the scripture and know that just because a door is closed does not mean that it is not God's will for you to go through it. And just because a door is open does not mean that it is God's will for you to pass that way. It is very dangerous for you to determine God's will based on open and closed doors. There have been, think, think back in your life, there have been open doors and you even attributed that to God. Look what God has done. He has opened this door and you have walked through that door and you have pursued a path that when you got down that path 10 years, maybe just five years, maybe just one year, maybe just a few months, you look back and you thought, I thought this was God's will, but it's clearly not because God is not the only one who opens doors. When I read the scripture, I actually read about closed doors that God calls his followers to go up to. What does Jesus say? He said, knock and it will be open to you. What does that imply to you? It implies that the door is closed. But here's what we do as Christians. We come up to a closed door. We see the closed door must not be God's will. And how many times do we go back and hide in our holy huddle and just keep praying for God to open the door? When he's saying, I gave you the key. I've got the answer to your prayer standing on the other side. When are you going to get up and open the door? When In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus speaking to the church. He's not speaking to an individual. Speaking to the church, he said, Behold, church, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will get up and will open that door, I'll come in and I'll have fellowship with them and they with me. What does that imply? It implies that the door is closed. Could Jesus open the door? Jesus can do anything Jesus wants. But instead, he expects somebody in faith and obedience to get up and open the door. And then the promise is that he will come in. The church was praying, missing what it was that God was doing. Listen, Write this down. We'll put it on the screen. Write this down because if you don't remember anything, I want you to remember this. And and it's really important. If you're a Christian and you're a believer, this this is really important for us to understand because I believe this is at the root of so many times in my life where I have missed God's activity, where I've been late and delayed and confused. God does not answer prayers so that we can remain complacent. God doesn't answer your prayers so that it can be more convenient for you to follow after him. God answers prayers of the impossible. God answers prayers of things that will that he was the only one who can get the glory for it when it happens. Prayer can be a form of spiritual procrastination. And, and listen to me, if you're new to Southside, you think, well, this guy really doesn't believe in prayer. I do believe in prayer. I just believe that sometimes our prayer is manifested itself in obedient activity and action. It's not enough just to pray. We have to be willing to obey what it is we hear God say in response to our prayers. Listen to what St. Augustine said. I love this quote. Pray as though everything depended on God. Work as though everything depended on you. Pray as if everything depended on God. Why? Because it does. 
Because Peter wasn't going to get dressed. He wasn't, he wasn't going to be able to follow anyone. He wasn't going to be able to knock on a door if God didn't first intervene and break the shackles and blind the guards and get him outside of the gate. Pray as if everything depended on God, but work as if everything depended on you. Know that God has called you for a purpose. He has given you a purpose. The scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's masterpieces created in Christ Jesus to do good work that he has prepared in advance for us to do. And to whatever degree, to whatever talents he's given you, whatever resources he's given you, whatever limited health he's given you, whatever extreme health he's given you, he expects you with what you have to be obedient to what he's called you to do. He's not asking you to be faithful with what he hasn't given you. He's asking you to be faithful with what he has given you. And so we have to respond in a way that shows our obedience. I wonder how many times we have prayed for things, we've made requests, and we've wondered why God hasn't acted, only to see God saying, I've answered your prayer, but when are you going to get up and open the door? When are you going to put on your clothes and follow after me? That's what Jesus said. Take up your cross and follow me. It implies activity. How many prayers are you praying that God has said, I've already put it within your power to see the answer to the prayer? How many people are praying, Lord, save my marriage? And God's saying, when are you going to call someone for help? When are you going to go, get a, go see a counselor? How many, of you are, how many people are praying, Lord, deliver me from debt and help me in my finances? And God's saying, I put resources all around you. When are you going to get involved in, in some, some education about how to, how, what the Bible says about using your money? When are you going to talk to somebody and say, I think I've dug myself a hole and I don't know how to get out of it? When are you going to take action that allows you to see that God has already provided an answer for your prayers? How many of us are praying for someone we know and we love? Oh, Lord, I pray they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And meanwhile, we've never said a word to them about the gospel. And God's saying, when are you going to stop praying for them to know the gospel? And when are you going to tell it to them? How many of us are praying for big issues? People who are in need and who are in want. And we look around and we shake our heads. And we think somebody ought to do something about that. And God's standing back and saying, I've given you resources. When are you not going to be so greedy? When are you going to give until it hurts? When are you going to serve until it hurts? When are you going to go the extra mile to be the answer to the prayer that you are praying, church? There's a reason he calls us the hands and feet of Jesus and the body of Christ. And it's not so that we can gather together in a room and close and lock the doors. Jesus said, a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. And a light, someone doesn't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. They shine it for the world to see. And some people, some of you even may be here today, and you're not a Christian because you look and you say, what's the church doing? What are Christians doing to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world today? It's not enough for us to pray for these things. We have to be obedient to the call of Jesus, church. And that doesn't happen on some corporate level with a committee or a form of church governance. It doesn't happen when you have the right pastor or the right staff. Or the, it happens when the people of God stand up and recognize Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. And saying, will you open it? The answer to the prayer is at the door. When we get to the end of our lives and we go to heaven... We do not go with the hope that we will hear, well prayed, good and faithful servant. 
well-talked-about good and faithful servant. Well-planned good and faithful servant. Well-studied good and faithful servant. When we get to heaven, what we long to hear from God is, say it with me, well-done good and faithful servant. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, the one who took over the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, said about this very subject. James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. This is what we talked about, wasn't it? That separation between those two things. That separation between, let's just wait on the Lord and pray and be, be faithful. And those people who are always so active that they never stand still long enough to know. James is addressing that. You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's not enough, church, to believe the right thing, but not put what we believe into practice. It's not enough, church, to circle up in a huddle and pray, but never be willing to get up and respond in obedience to what the God we're praying to has called us to do. God's call for us is to wake up. To wake up and recognize that yes, we should pray because everything does depend on God's activity, but we need to be found faithful in doing everything that we can with every resource and every ounce of strength God has given us until his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. In just a moment, I'm going to voice our prayer together and we're going to stand together and sing a hymn of invitation. And I, I recognize that the message today really is a message for those of us who, who already believe. We believe what the demons shudder about. People who may already pray earnestly, fervently. But maybe, maybe we've missed God's call to wake up, to get dressed, and to follow after Jesus in obedience. For some, you're here today, and you're searching. You've been searching for Jesus, and you've heard things, and you've seen things. And some of the things that you've seen from people who claim to be Christians doesn't line up with what you believe a savior would really be like. But listen, it's not me calling you to believe, and it's not even other believers calling you to believe. It's the Holy Spirit who calls you to believe. And you, you also have to get up and be willing to open the doors. And the promise of Jesus is that if you will open the door, he will come in. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for, unbeliever? What are you waiting for, Christian? Father, we come to you today and we're first confessing to you that like the early church, like Peter, James, and John in the garden, like Jonah in the boat, like Elijah under the broom tree, Father, it is so easy for us to drift into sleep and to be unaware of your activity all around us even while we slumber. Father, would you wake us up, strike us on the side if you have to. And Lord, may our faith be more than something we say, but may it be what we do as we respond to your invitation 
as we prepare ourselves and we get dressed and we put our cloak on and we follow Jesus and we knock on doors that are closed that you intend to open and we open doors that you have closed that you're inviting us to open. Father, give us, give us the courage and the faith to respond to you in obedience. And Lord, today, for those who are here today, there are people who their act of faith may just be stepping out of an aisle, not because anything miraculous or happens because they come down an aisle or pray with me but lord because they need to remind themselves of the action that they have to take when they leave this place holy spirit we invite you who are active and moving and working to be active and moving and working even now as we sing these words in jesus name amen